0: La Rui Productions presents The Great Unlearning, a courageous memoir about one woman's bold journey to mend her broken past. Read for you today by me, the author Mary Law. In the last and very first episode of The Great Unlearning, I shared two pieces from the beginning of the book. I titled the introduction squirming out of my comfort zone because of what I learned about the healing powers of vulnerability in telling my stories, which helped me overcome my trauma, getting me to the root causes of my suffering, and how art helped me make sense of the life I have lived so far with the amazing result of letting go of shame and regret. Then I read the first story in the book called The Runaway, where I shared the unfortunate circumstances that separated our family of eight and consequently distorted my sense of self-worth and affected every decision I'd make for decades. Today, I would like to read to you the next story in my book titled, The Unloved Daughter. I have no memories of being loved by my mother, no sweet recall of warm moments being cuddled on her lap as she stroked my hair and told me how much she loved me. I've always wondered what that would feel like. I did feel special the day I ran through a sliding glass door, however, when I was ten. My older brother was pulling the wings off of a live monarch butterfly in the backyard and as I attempted to run into the house to have my mother make him stop, instead ran face first into the sliding glass door. After shattering the glass, I collapsed on the threshold, halfway in, bloodied from cuts all over my face and body. The tip of my nose was broken, nearly sliced off, and was hanging by a thread of skin. When my mother ran in from the kitchen, she grabbed my shoulders and dragged me over the broken glass just far enough to avoid the rest of the door which came crashing down like a guillotine. My butterfly-torturing brother took off his Boy Scout belt, buckled it tight around my left arm to stop the blood from spurting from my left wrist and my parents took me to the hospital, where they doted on me in a way I had never experienced before. It felt like it was worth all the stitches to my face, shoulder, and wrist as they hovered over me, even buying me ice cream on the way home. It was a weird kind of heaven. Later that year, my brother got his turn. After receiving a hand grenade from a neighbor who was a World War II vet, he stuffed the grenade full of match heads to make a smoke bomb. I remember him showing it off in the house as all of my siblings took turns playing with it, after which it unexpectedly exploded while he was out on our driveway and blew most of his right hand off. The blast shattered the windows in the front of the house, shredding the laundry hanging from the open garage door and loaded his 13-year-old body with shrapnel. He got ice cream on the way home from the hospital, too. I mostly remember my mother's irritability. Her frequent preoccupation with something that made her eyebrows knit together. It was hard not to rub her the wrong way, so I stayed out of her way best I could. We all grew to fear her, and it took some courage to ask for what we needed because it could feel like we were intruding on her space. She would often whip her body around, arms raised in the air as she shouted, What? Before locking eyes with our terrified faces as her hands landed on her hips. When she was really angry, she would yell red light. At that point, we knew we had to stop what we were doing, go to our rooms, and be quiet until we heard green light. Our family of eight lived in a small three-bedroom house in a typical suburban development in Southern California. I shared a bedroom with my two sisters. The three boys were across the hall. On any given day, we were only allowed to go in and out of the house twice because the screen door slammed with ear-splitting precision and interrupted my mother's concentration. Six kids and more than 12 slams were a minimum for a red light afternoon. At bedtime, my mother would usher us all down the hall into our rooms and stand in the doorway to make sure we were in bed. After turning off the light, she twirled the glowing ember of her cigarette in the air over her head a few times to entertain us before closing the door. I don't remember any bedtime rituals or stories, getting tucked in or personal hygiene. One of my sisters developed baby dreadlocks under her pelt of sandy blonde hair. We all ran around with poop stains in our underwear and dirty rings around our necks and ankles. While my brother was recovering from surgery to save the remainder of his hand, we had an epic red-light day. My mother was so mad, she yanked dinner plates from the dishwasher and lifted them up over her head before sending them crashing to the kitchen floor one by one, yelling about how sick and tired she was. As my siblings and I sat stunned at the picnic table we used in the kitchen, my youngest brother, who was in a high chair at the far end, started crying, which made matters worse. My fear of her became permanent the day she yanked me from the backyard swing set, then dragged me into the house by my hair because she thought I had eaten the chocolate frosting off my grandpa's birthday cake. Although I hadn't, she punished me for it anyway angrily folding me over her lap and spanking me over and over, despite my screaming red light as loud and as many times as I could. Although my mother didn't reveal her pain to us in understandable ways, I knew she had been raised by an angry mother, whose mother had also been angry. Maybe my mother didn't know how to love because she'd never had love modeled for her. Over time, after learning by her example that I was unlovable and not worthy of attention or affection, I accepted what appeared to be love from anyone who offered it as I grew up. Drifting through the unfortunate circumstances of my young life, because I lacked a positive self image, an apparent consequence of not receiving love from one who should have provided it. I needed consistent external validation from wherever I could get it, and I found it all right, but at the expense of my physical and emotional well-being. It's entirely possible my father wasn't the saint that my brothers and sisters and I remember him as, since my relationship with him was completely different than the one he had with my mother. He was good at fathering, but perhaps not at being a husband. That was my mother's claim, anyway. It is also possible that my mother had been in survival mode, doing the best she could at treading the waters of her own personal hell, while being pregnant nearly every year for a decade. She had seven children, with the firstborn dying at birth. With a growing number of toddlers hanging onto her legs while she tried to keep her life together as an overextended housewife and mother, I was just one of her irritating problems. So I was forced to mother myself into adulthood, something I was not very good at. With all of the dysfunctional relationships I found myself in strikingly similar to the broken one I had with my mother. I wonder now if the selfless choices to please other people were subconsciously made to please her. I blamed her out loud for quite a bit of my suffering, believing that my poor confidence and lack of self-esteem was her fault. During the years when I refused to forgive her or even speak to her, I became stuck in a toxic resentment which was accompanied by a low, steady hum of anger that manifested in constant angst. These descriptions of my mother are all from childhood memories, and even as I grew into adulthood, I could only see her through the lens of a neglected child. But after realizing that I had become a different person, I began to think that perhaps she could be too since after divorcing my father, two other men found her lovable enough to marry later in life. So about 15 years ago, I flew my mother to my home in Oregon with the intent of having a deep and meaningful conversation about my experience as her daughter growing up. I felt ready, thanks to a blossoming which followed years of excruciating inner work After learning that my refusal to forgive was trapping me in an anger which prevented me from moving forward with an understanding of our relationship, I understood how blaming her made it hard for me to be compassionate. One day after she arrived, we were alone in my kitchen talking about our life in California, skirting the periphery of my childhood pain. When I nervously wrapped my arms around her and found the courage to wholeheartedly say, I forgive you, I felt triumphant, and as a moment of silence passed, teared up with a sense of joy. But when she broke away from my hug with a puzzled look on her face and asked, For what? It appeared she might not think she had done anything to warrant forgiveness or perhaps didn't quite understand how her mothering continued to affect me even as an adult. Regardless, my lower lips started to quiver, and feeling my heart flop in my chest, I slowly turned away so she wouldn't see my face as I went to the kitchen sink and held on. The color in my cheeks drained down my body to my sweaty feet, as did my courage to continue the conversation. My well of grief no longer seemed worth diving into with her as I resigned myself to, and am still recovering from, the likelihood of never having a loving relationship with her. After one of my sisters gave birth to her first child, our mother had burdened her with some brutal honesty by telling her, I really never wanted to be a mother, and Children don't become a joy until they turn 18. But these sentiments had landed on our tender young hearts decades before she said this out loud. It is my prediction that my father was correct when he said to my mother before he died, You are going to die a lonely old woman. She doesn't have loving relationships with any of her children or grandchildren with a couple of my siblings tolerating her at best. The absence of any female heroes growing up required that I become a hero for myself and for my daughters. A mother unlike my own in a million ways, I have broken the cycle that my mother, her mother, and her mother's mother were trapped in. As a hospice nurse, a pang of envy tightens my throat when I see a devastated daughter at the bedside of her beloved dying mother. But perhaps I have been spared the despair of losing a dear mother with my own already feeling dead to me, even though she is living in New Mexico or maybe Texas. I prioritize and support my daughters with all of my heart, and can't imagine not being in their lives. I offer those darlings unconditional love in every way I can, joking with them that I would drive to Africa in a car without air conditioning if they needed to be rescued. They know I would come get them in the middle of the night, anywhere, no questions asked. All they have to say is, Mom. I'm in Africa. I need you. And I'll be on my way to wherever they are. I feel deep sadness that my mother has missed out on my most rich and amazing life. She doesn't know the brilliance and beauty of her accomplished granddaughters who live lives in their fullest expression of joy and service to humanity. Both of my daughters have gifted me the greatest compliment by saying on many occasions, Mom, I hope I turn out just like you. This story was heartbreaking to write, and I teared up more often than I let on while reading it. I have received so much positive feedback about this story. Apparently, many women relate to this topic. A daughter's need for her mother's love is primal and doesn't diminish when it's unavailable, even well into adulthood. Through writing this book, I've learned that there are some common wounds adult women share when raised by unloving or unavailable mothers. These include lack of confidence, lack of trust, trouble setting boundaries, being overly sensitive, and playing the maternal role in relationships. Oh my gosh, I identified so much with these traits, and this awareness was a miraculous springboard to my healing and inspired me to keep exploring and riding. If you'd like to see the incredible self-portrait I created to accompany the unloved daughter, you will find it on my blog at mary-law.com. It's one of my favorites. Or better yet, while you're on my website, by The Great Unlearning, there are over 50 surreal self-portraits and stories in there. Visit mary-law.com. If you purchase a book via my website, I will send you an autographed copy while they last. Or you can simply buy it on Amazon. Now it's time to address a reader's question. Candice, a listener from Southern California, emailed me with a question about the introduction squirming out of my comfort zone. She asked, What is it about discovering the roots of your suffering that allowed you to start healing? Great question, Candice. I have learned that the brain is always working to understand and make sense of things, so it's uncomfortable with the unknown and the unresolved. We often have to convince our brains that the unknown is okay. It takes work. Have you ever found yourself consciously trying to calm yourself down because of not knowing the outcome of something? Yeah, me too. I've spent a good part of my life living with an uncomfortable hum of angst and restlessness that I couldn't identify the source of. Here is the takeaway. You can't fix something if you don't know what it is. How about an analogy? Let's say there's a weird smell in your house. You can open windows or burn a candle, but unless you find the source of the smell, it's going to linger or get worse. You have to clean out the fridge or take out the trash. See what I mean? With my exploration for this book, by digging around in my past, I learned where the source of my angst came from. From writing my stories, I had so many aha moments, the kind that rang bells of recognition in my chest and brought me into an immediate clarity that startled me sometimes. But here's an important thing to know about examining your past. If you don't have a good set of coping skills and don't know how to manage painful discoveries, Ripping open a wound from your past might not be manageable. It's best to gather good, healthy coping skills first. If you have a question or comment about a story or my art, please email me at mary at mary-law.com. There is a good chance I'll mention your comment or address your question in a future podcast. And... I have a free gift for you by signing up for my engaging quarterly newsletter with inspiring new content, information on upcoming events and future projects. You will receive the audio version of my book of poetry, fear means go read by me. I also play classical guitar on this recording as I did for today's podcast. In the next episode, I will read the next two stories in my book. The first story is titled Belonging, where I will read about my struggles as a child to belong in an elementary school environment where I was rejected and teased into believing I was unlovable and not worth friendship. A seed of self-worth was planted during this time, however, but it sure took a long time to blossom from it. The second story is titled, Fitting In, where I will read about my failed suicide attempt at 15 years old to fit into a gang of delinquent kids. I fit in all right, but endured some absurd rituals to stay in. This is Mary Law. Thanks for listening.